You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech, where we went out dancing last night and saw a fistfight break out between Spotify and Apple on the dance floor, where Lil Nas X walks in wearing sequin cowboy boots and Billy Ray Cyrus tips his hat with a smile, where one and a half billion teenagers with perfect hair and makeup stop by TikTok's VIP booth for a swig of champagne, where one out of 100 of those teenagers can't take their eyes off of a marshmallow performance on Fortnite, where Taylor Swift turns around and walks out as soon as she sees Scooter Braun, and where YouTube and Facebook are laughing their asses off to the bank. My name's Dimitri Vitsa, and I'm your host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Rock, Paper, Scissors, a PR firm that specializes in music, tech, and music tech. Today's a special episode as we have Music Ally editor Stuart Dredge here with us to go over their just-released 42 Trends of 2019 report. I'm so excited. Great to have you here, Stuart. How's it going? I'm good, good. Delighted to be on here too, yes. It's our first time having you on, although let me ask you a question first off. How the hell do you pull off a daily newsletter with so much great info, Stu? Oh, God. I just, it's, it feels like things are just flying past my nose most of the time, just trying to catch them. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, one, it's one of the best things about my job is just literally every day what's happened in the last 24 hours. And there's so much stuff happening in the industry at the moment around tech around it that it's, yeah, it's fun, but I, I just, I don't know. It's kind of, I think if I question it too much, I might stop being able to do it. <laughs> when do you, I mean, do you, when's your cutoff for writing it? Is it at night? Is it early in the morning? Um, so the bulletin goes out. Um, so it's, uh, for people who haven't seen it, it's like a daily email newsletter. Um, it goes out every morning around about 9, 9.30 a.m. UK time. So I collect stuff the day before, um, kind of have around in my head when I go to bed, and then when I get up in the morning, just see what's broken overnight, and then just sit there and bash it out, really. It's become this weird sort of um, process that seems to work, although it shouldn't. Well, it's, it totally works because, I mean, it's the one newsletter that I read every day. I love it because on um, Eastern time in the U.S., I get it, you know, sometimes five, six in the morning. And it's the first thing that's in my inbox. And it's great to just kind of catch up with what happened the last day or whatever. And um, what's cool about this report that you guys have just released is that it's almost like going back through and doing a best of for the newsletter because I've seen some of these topics come up. But it's nice to, like, take a breath, look back and see everything that that happened this year. Well, that's exactly what it is. And it, it's one of the things I, well, it's, it's a rub for my back, really, because every year I'm like, let's do the best 40 trends. And everyone around me goes, don't do 40, do Sue 10. It'll be much easier. And there's just so much that, yeah. So the way we work this report is we, I go back through everything we've written through the year, like every single bulletin, and just try and see what patterns emerge that maybe I didn't see at the time because you're in the thick of it. Uh, well, and one of the things I like about it, Stu, is that I'm thinking my brain only holds about three to six months of information in terms of that that timeline. So as I was reading your report, I was able to go back to stuff that happened at the beginning. And I was like, I was like, wow, that was in 2019. It's true. And you, again, things like when I go through things I completely forgotten about, <laughs> they're really important at the time. It's, it's a weird one. It's like, it, it's really, really fun. And the other thing for me is like um, the way Music Ally works is well, I have colleagues who do stuff that's not journalism, they do marketing and training and so on. And they'll often be like, can you just come and sit in and give us some ideas? Because you remember all the stuff that's been in the news. And I'm useless if I don't have access to my Gmail, my archives, because it all goes in one ear and out the other when I'm writing this stuff. So actually so quickly, it's hard to, it's hard to keep it all in there. Well, that's it. So doing the, doing a report, it's a lovely time to sort of sit down and go, right, what was important this year and what, what maybe didn't feel important at the time, but turned out to be relevant later and, you know, all this stuff. I think it's why journalists love doing end of year reports because A, it's good. And also you don't have to do new interviews. You can just sort of sit there and think and read. Yeah. That's a nice, nice chance for reflection. So I noticed that it's kind of in order. There's 42 trends. I noticed that the, the higher emphasis things come to the top. And, uh, but when I, when I looked through it, I was trying to think, well, how can we group some of this together for, for this interview, <laughs> um, for this conversation? And I came up with maybe seven or eight, uh, topics that I thought we could, we could go with. So are you cool if we just dive in? That sounds fine. And you know, my bosses will be listening to this going, yeah, those are the seven or eight topics you should have boiled down on. <laughs> so I'll be in trouble. Yes. No, fire away. Let's, let's go. It's like the index version. It's fine. Yeah. Um, and so people should get their hands on a, on a copy of the, of the report and they can either hit pause now, go grab it or, and, and review it together, or they can uh, listen to this and then go see, dig in for more detail. Yeah. And I think by the time this comes out, I'll try and pin it to our Twitter profile or something like that. So it's kind of obvious where to get it. And is the Twitter just at Music Ally? It is, yeah. We, we, we managed to hold on to that through all the years of um, Music Ally, the social app. <laughs> Coming right. along. We, we yeah. have the yeah, app Music Ally. 
Perfect. Okay, so it looked like from from reading several sections of your report, 2019 seemed a bit like a turning point for the global digital music industry. Um, you know, in some cases, it had to do with streaming growth in certain markets that hadn't had it yet, like really explosive growth. Others just entering the market but having a significant population base, and others that are experimenting with new ways of um, people enjoying music or having social music experiences, and, and also just certain genres that were just super super popular this year again. Um, where do you want to start? I mean, you talk about India, China, Africa, Latin America. What should we start with? Yeah, well, I suppose all of the above because the, the trend that is in my head quite a lot is um, so Musical.ly, I think we were founded in 2002. We've been around quite, quite a long time. And when it started and for most of its history, digital was our thing. Like we focused on new digital stuff for the music industry. And the thing we've noticed in the last couple of years is a lot of the people who were the, the, the big digital people at the labels and other music companies, what they're excited about now is new markets. And so they're all looking at what's happening in India, what's happening in China, what can we do in Africa? Like that idea of the new frontier, I think digital is such the mainstream of the industry now. And there's lots of stuff going on that's really interesting still. But I think this idea of the new frontier has become these markets. Um, and the other thing I learned this year actually was I learned to not call them emerging markets. Right. I think the phrase over here, I don't know if it's the same in the US, but the phrase I hear more now here is high potential markets is what people mm. say. I think the IFPI says that. And it's kind of a way of acknowledging that a lot of these places, they're not emerging. They've, they've emerged quite a lot already. So like, I think there's 150 million people streaming music in India already. There's like 600, 700 million in China. Like these are, in, in one sense, mature markets already. Huge numbers of people using digital music. But from our point of view in the Western industry, they're, they're new to us. And we're trying to figure out how we fit in and what we learn from them. Um, yeah, that's interesting. So let's talk about India briefly. What yeah. did you see in 2019 that, that stood out for you? So India is really interesting because like, it's, it's one of those places where there's a real battleground between the established local streaming services. So Ghana there has 100 million users. Um, GeoSavan has 100 million. But you had Spotify launch there this year. Apple Music was already there. Amazon is doing more there. YouTube is doing a lot. And YouTube is enormous in India. I think YouTube has got like 265 million uh, monthly active users there. So it's this market where kind of all of these things we think about, the services we know, but also some strong local guys are, are competing. So that's one thing. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's just also its own market. So, I mean, film music has always been huge in India. So Bollywood and other, other kind of regional film industries there. That's been the music industry, really, film music. And right. so what's happening alongside all these people coming in and these new services is there's now more independent music coming out that's not tied to films, independent artists, people like Universal Music and Mass Effect, I think, isn't it, in New York? NASA's mm. label. Uh, went in there so it's kind of this this place it's kind of in the middle of a lot of companies from around the world and a lot of trends it, so it's really fascinating but yeah it's one of those markets where there's loads of people streaming and not many people paying and mm. i think that there was a couple of conferences in india this year where the industry there was saying yeah we want to be a top 10 market i think it's 15th it was or let me think in 2018 it was the 15th biggest in the world according to the ifpi and it and the industry there wants to be in the top 10 and the key to that will be getting people to pay for music, not just stream it. So there's kind of some of the things we've talked about in the West in the past of how do you get people to pay for free stream music is happening there too. You know, the other thing that's interesting about these other markets, when we start thinking about uh, high potential markets that maybe, uh, you know, US and European companies are going into in, in Asia and Africa and Latin America and so forth, is the opportunity to experiment with something that maybe they can't easily put out in, say, the US market, for example. What are you seeing in India that's kind of interesting on that front? So there's some collaborations. So um, it's GeoServan, one of the streaming services there. They're doing a lot of collaborations where they're matching an Indian artist with a Western artist uh, and then figuring out how that song can travel. So that's one thing. Mm. Um, and I think um, this is kind of a much bigger point, I think, about the idea of uh, you can be a global artist now, even if you're not singing in English, which mm. I think the history of our industry has been kind of very Anglo-centric. You had to, if you were from Latin America, you had to sing in English and probably duet with the American artists to kind of break out. Right. Whereas now, I think Despacito is probably the kind of the most, the, the big thing that kicked it off. But now you've got like Jay Balvin being the biggest star on Spotify, BTS and Blackpink from South Korea. So I think a lot of labels are looking at India and saying, well, if there is uh, someone who raps in Hindi there, who's a local artist, that's not necessarily a barrier to them traveling around the world. So right. what kind of partnerships can we do and how can we work with them? So you're seeing Universal Music sign this rapper Divine, who's one of the key local independent rappers. 
and they're working with him and they see him as a global artist, not just a big and indie artist. So I think that's one of the things is like, how can you bring people from there? And you don't have to have those conversations maybe about, oh, well, obviously the album will have to be in English. Obviously we'll have to get some big collaborators who are famous in the Western world. Like some of those rules have kind of been ripped up. Um, yeah, that's interesting. That's very interesting. It's like, it was always there, but now like the Western culture has shifted the perspective of what needs to happen uh, in, in, you know, whether they're importing or exporting music in terms of what language it's in. Yeah. And even seeing like, I've got a 10 year old son and he can, he can sing Despacito word for word. Um, and he can't speak Spanish. <laughs> so, so I think this idea of, yeah, a lot of our assumptions in the past about what would need to happen for a local artist to go global. I've got a 10 year old. He was listening to Stromae at age three and singing in French. I was like, wow. Well, exactly. Yeah. And seeing, seeing like the, the teenagers who are mad for BTS and no other word, like, I think it just, uh, it's, it seems a bit patronizing to talk about it in this way, but I think it's, it just tears up some of our assumptions that this is an Anglo-centric industry. It doesn't have to be. And one of the things I've seen, I've seen it talked about more than I've seen it done yet, but I think it's going to happen is actually cutting out those middlemen in the Anglo world so why wouldn't a Brazilian artist or Mexican artist collaborate with mm -hmm. a K-pop artist? And they'll do something because K-pop is very big in Latin America. So there's all these potential collaborations where you don't need to have an American or British star. And that's fascinating, you know, and, and probably terrifying if you're a label with lots of British and American stars because you suddenly need to be playing in those markets. Well, and it kind of brings up this topic of kind of geopolitical shifts in the music industry, which might be a good time to talk about China. Yeah. I mean, China, I mean, I've seen, so I remember China, um, there were a couple of conferences, I think two years ago, where people just did an overview of what's happening in China. These are the big streaming services. And just the numbers made everyone's jaw drop. I remember there was um, uh, the chap from Tencent Music um, did a thing at Medem where he said, oh yeah, we've got 600 million monthly active listeners. And the whole room gasped. And then he went, oh yeah, but wait a minute, only 15 million are paying for it. And the whole room still gasped. because it was still So... That was like my introduction, I think, to what was happening in China. Like, whereas in, in the past, we've written about it as like this place where the labels were really worried about piracy and illegal downloads. And it was a market that was seen as very difficult. Yeah. And in the intervening years, it got to be this huge new market. And now, again, there's this discussion about, well, they want to get people to pay for music, not just stream it for free. Um, but it is, it's a fascinating place just because it's so different as well. Like the, the thing I remember when we wrote about piracy in China was basically um, unlicensed download websites were kind of stamped out overnight because the government said you will not do unlicensed downloads. Mm. And the nature of the geopolitical thing in China is they, they stopped overnight and suddenly there was a legal market. Um, so it's very, very different, I think, um, in terms of how the market's been pushed along by the government to what we understand in the West, what's kind of helped streaming develop. But so, yeah. So, yeah, so another thing interesting about China is up until TikTok, it felt like there were mostly American, European companies, platforms that were kind of dictating both uh, kind of music services and social media in the West anyway. And now we have TikTok. It's like the year of TikTok in 2019. It is. Oh, God. And someone with a 10-year-old son, you might, I mean, I'm mine, I, I have everything just to stop, pull my son off with the iPad looking at it at the moment. But yeah, I think so. And that's the other thing about China. It, it's like we think about these markets, these high potential markets. And I think we often in the West tend to assume, oh, they'll they'll be like ours. They'll develop like ours did. But when I've talked to people from China, so for example, NetEase Cloud Music, which is kind of the second biggest streaming service, streaming company, um, they've got a streaming service. But one of the big things on it has got comments. Mm. And every song and every album has this rich sort of um, – context provided by fans talking about music and when i think of comments i tend to think about comments in the west which are a cesspit and people trolling each other but i talked to the guy who runs that service and he was like no 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 it's like this is the context is coming from the fans and we don't have that like spotify doesn't have a commenting system so in some ways i think some of these chinese services might be showing us a thing or two that we can bring back to the west and, the, and i think tiktok is a good example like I think a lot of people were like, oh yeah, Facebook is the biggest social network. Twitter is that, Instagram is that, um, Snapchat is that. And then suddenly there was this new thing that was 15 second short videos with miming. And, and it, it, it just, it, it, it came out of nowhere for a lot of us. So I think that's really interesting that these, yeah, these platforms can be born in a market like China and then aggressively expand overseas. And to weave together um, some of our conversations so forth, you have ByteDance, the parent company of TikTok from China, launching Rezo in India and having a commenting feature as well. 
Yeah, we just, I mean, it was so funny. So writing our end of your report, we had this whole section on TikTok and bike dance. And literally the day after it was finished, the news of Rezo broke. And it was like, oh God, got to write the whole thing again. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it's, again, one of the things I'm really curious about um, for next year is like, again, Spotify, Apple Music, um, Deezer, Amazon, all these services have their own kind of specialities and their own features. But there's kind of a, a, a template that you can fit them all into. And I'm really fascinated to see if something like Rezo can kind of break out of that mold and, and, and do something different. And with its case, it's very much about social. It's bringing the TikTok style user-generated videos together with the streaming music. It's bringing comments in, like you said, like, can there be this new model? And will that kick everyone else at the bum a little bit to kind of start innovating in other ways and there? So yeah, I'm really, really fascinated. And the fact that it's starting in India, where I think, I'm trying to remember the figure, I think TikTok certainly has 100 million, maybe 120 million active users in India. So this new service Rezo there is launching on the back of one of the most popular social services. And there's almost this, this interesting possibility in my mind that the two big streaming services in India could end up being YouTube and Rezo, which would be a really interesting thought for mm. the music industry that tends to think of Spotify and Apple and the big, the big players in the Western world. Right. Yeah. So before we move off this global point, which obviously we could do a whole episode on, we should mention you, you bring up uh 10 cents, uh, kind of bid for, for going after 10, 10% of UMG's, uh, ownership, which is, could be a significant thing. Um, you also talk about Africa and the, the role boom play is having there. Yeah. I mean, Africa is, is really, I'm, I'm, one of the things that in the next year I really want to kind of get into explore is what's happening in Africa. And I think the first thing everyone learns is like Africa isn't one place. It's all these different countries that have very different levels of development in terms of um, the industry infrastructure, streaming services, mobile data, all this stuff. So it's kind of this really, really interesting patchwork of, of places. Um, and I think it's it's the thing that really struck me about it, writing about this year, was when I talked to some people there, there's a lot of pride and excitement about African artists and African services and building the infrastructure rather than just taking what the Western world has and bring, importing it. Um, we had a conference actually in January where um, someone from a label was saying, yeah, don't just like come into Africa and say, you're going to bring us the music industry structure and you're going to help us do all this and that. It's about building it ourselves and it might not be the same as yours. And that, that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. So, Boomplay is a good example. So a streaming service that's emerged from Africa. I think it's in a, uh, a bunch of countries there now. Um, I think they're the first one to have deals with all the three global major labels. Mm. Um, but actually, it's the local catalog that's still the big for them. And yeah, it's this 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 thing of this market doesn't necessarily Spotify isn't necessarily the winner, and a service that exactly like Spotify isn't necessarily the winner. Um, but it's also so early. I think that that it's. I think people tend to get really excited about these places. And then if they don't pop straight away, everyone goes, oh, that's a bit disappointing. But then two years later, it's really exciting again. So I think that we might have, I think Africa's in that point of view where people are just putting the groundwork in place and we're going to see loads of interesting little stories rather than some big, massive upsurge. It's like, Africa has come now for music, if that makes sense. Um, I mean, the other thing as well, it's like, it's, yeah, Africa is such a musical continent. Like, it's. I think that's the exciting thing that the different cultures of each country there, music is so central and so important, and so exciting that as those countries build their infrastructure, it's just going to be brilliant because they have the music and they have the musicians and they have the live scenes and everything. So there's there's like a really, it's going to be a really really wonderful time I think. And I think seeing artists come out of there already, like seeing I think YouTube uh, got behind Burner Boy and Apple got behind him. Um, here in the UK, and Davido, who's um, he headlined uh, a gig at the O2 venue in London. So I think you're already seeing artists finding audiences worldwide through platforms like YouTube and through the Disbora as well. So yeah, it's already underway, but I think it's going to be one of those things where there'll be lots of interesting little stories rather than trying to seek the big trend of Africa as you know suddenly big for digital music. Awesome. So um, we could go into more about Latin America as well, but for the sake of time, uh, with Latin America, 2018 had a pretty strong year. I think people started to notice what was going on there. But for the second kind of combined trend that I looked at um, through your looking through your report overall, it seemed like there is kind of a, an expansion of the definition of what music format formats have commercial implications. And I say that in a kind of very broad way. Some of them are newer music formats. Some are things that you guys have been keeping an eye on for years. But let's talk a little bit about 
Um, one thing you refer to is the AI music generation um, uh, trend. Want to talk a little bit about that and what you saw in 2019? Yeah, because you had Danny Dale on, didn't you, recently What's on that? the podcast? Uh, you had Danny Dale oh, yeah, on the Verge, yeah, on the Verge. Yeah. who's properly on top of all this too, and I'm reading her stuff. Mm. But yeah, I think we've been covering AI music for about, I think it's four years now since this company called Duke Deck came along in the UK. And we're kind of the first one that came out as a company doing AI generated music. And it's been really interesting. I think in the last year, there's been this shift from kind of, oh my God, AI music, it's going to put musicians out of work. This is terrible. To this idea of AI being a creative tool that musicians can use. So we wrote about uh, Holly Herndon, who's an artist here in the UK. Uh, I think she might be from the United States, actually, or from Canada. Mm. Um, and Yacht over in the States, and a few other examples of musicians who'd actually sat down and kind of worked with an AI or used an AI to create. And that's the, the big thing this year I've seen that there's, I think for a long time, whenever I interviewed anyone from an AI music company, they'd be like, oh yeah, it's not a threat, it's a tool for artists. And this year is the first year when we've actually seen that happen and see what can come out of it. Yeah, we had um, an AI's Got Talent session during the Music Tectonics Conference in October that was specifically to talk about well, to have a fun way of talking about what are the different ways that AI gets involved with making music and audio and, and, and things like that. But it just seems like that has reached a place where either people have, you know, jumped over the hump of accepting that it's actually could be a, a legitimate tool for, for making music, or that there may be uses for AI generated music that are different than what human created music are, for example. And you mentioned Boomi in your report as well. And they were on that, uh, that talent show that we did. Yeah. And one thing that I'm Boomi, I, so I, I, I'll go ahead. Oh, go on. Well, I didn't write about this in the report because it would feel, it would be too, it would be dodgy promotion. Myself. <laughs> but I actually, I was so interested in Boomi this year and I, I actually used that for this to release a couple of albums. So I've released a couple of albums now through Boomi of AI generated music myself, just to understand how it works and what it means. Um, Is it listening? And I'm quite, it's listenable, yeah. I mean, well, I'm kind of, I'm kind of quite pleased that no one's listening to it. Like, I get these emails from Spotify and Apple saying, "Congratulations, four people listening this week," <laughs> and I'm, I'm kind of quietly pleased that actually real musicians are are, are getting listened to and not me. Yeah. But um, it was really, I'm really, really, I, I, I keep, I overuse the word fascinated. That kind of describes how I feel about this stuff. But I am fascinated about what it means that a non-musician can go and create music using AI. And so in that case, it was me putting it on Spotify and Apple Music, and I'm not sure that really means anything. But one of the themes we've been exploring recently is what happens if um, normal people can use it? So for example, what if every teenager in the world had an app to create music using an AI and share it and put it on their videos? I think that's where we're heading to, this idea of AI as a tool for non-musicians to make music, not to compete with Ed Sheeran or Lizzo and all like that, but to kind of use for their own purposes and to share. And that is going to be really exciting, I think. And that's, it's super early days for that. And, and Danny, who you referred to, Danny Deal would say, what do you mean non-musicians? There's no such thing as non-musicians. <laughs> well, that's it, isn't it? It's like the thing, of, and I, this is the most overused cliche in, in, in all of this, but you know, this idea about when we were in the stone age, we all sat around and everyone sang and everyone hit things with the rocks <laughs> and everyone was a musician. We, we, sat, we sang and we played music together. And in the recording music era, we've kind of lost that. And you kind of, you either make music because you're a musician or you don't and you listen. So, so yeah. Stu, let me ask you something. You've put these tracks out from Boomi on the Spotify. Mm. Who owns the rights? Who owns the publishing on that? So it's um, through a distributor. I, I get a share. I think the way Boomi works is you get a share of the recorded music royalties, uh, which is kind of generous, but not, not so good if you're only being streamed 10 times. Um, and I believe the publisher is uh, Boomi's CEO, Alex, uh -huh. actually. He's the listed songwriter, um, which is not, I know he's a nice guy. I think you probably talked to him yeah. as well. He's a lovely, lovely man. He's not trying to steal everyone's credits, but I think you can't have an AI credited as a songwriter. So generally, it would now be the person who runs the startup or the developer of the AI. And that's kind of something I think we're going to see a lot more discussion about. He's come, like, you know, who is the who is the who is the songwriter? And if I did more with it, would I be the songwriter? So yeah, so yeah, I, I get. I think I get about. I think I've got about zero point zero two cents of royalties so far. But I'm kind of pleased. So I, I would generally, and I talked about this Tim last time I interviewed him. I would, I would feel quite guilty if my music was getting lots of streams and a human musicians who was trained wasn't. Um, he told me off. He's, he told me off. He said, "No, no, you you chose that and you worked on it. You know, it's don't put yourself down." But I I still think. Well, and that may deter some more traditional music industry musicians uh, from using an app like that if they're not going to keep as much of the, the rights. 
um, as they continue to tweak their music using those tools. I mean, it's super early. I think when you have musicians using these tools, just the whole point of who is, yeah, I mean, this stuff is going to be talked about. And, I, and hopefully I think it's going to be, it's hopefully it's not arguments. I hope it's going to be like, we need to, this breaks all the models we have. So right. how do we figure it out? But it doesn't have to be a, a squabble, hopefully. Which is what you point out in that section of the, the report. You know, the other thing mm. we should talk about is gaming esports as we look mm. at uh, new commercial implications for music. What, what, what did you see in 2019 there? Well, let's, so it, was, it was great because we had a conference. We have this conference called Sandbox Summit, which is kind of for marketing. And it was in October last year, I think. I did a talk about Fortnite and esports. And it was kind of saying, here is what Fortnite is. Here is what esports is. And maybe there's some stuff you can do as musicians. And one thing I'm saying was like, why not have concerts within Fortnite? And really luckily, um, within a couple of months, Marshmallow did his big gig in Fortnite and 10 million people watched it. So it wasn't that we told him to do that or anything. It's more that, you know, I suddenly looked smart because <laughs> I'd <laughs> said a random prediction and someone had actually done it. And I'd say a lot more that don't come true. So I'm, I'm not getting big headed. Nice work though. It's good to get some of them right, right? I think so, yeah. And then you can you can put those in your gravestone. But yeah, I think, um, so we've, I mean, the, the good thing about Musical being so it's kind of around so well is we've covered a lot of this stuff in a way. So we covered like the, the plastic peripherals era of Guitar Hero and Rock Band and, and when that was exciting for music. And then we covered the era of like Tap Tap Revenge on iPhone, if you remember that, the kind of the, mm -hmm. the music rhythm game that you tapped along to. Um, so there have been these periods when games as a music licensing thing have been very exciting, and then it tends to ebb away again. And this year, yeah, I think we saw people looking at Fortnite and saying, well, we could do music stuff. And really, it's been only Marshmallow, and then Weezer had an island in there, and I think Major Lazer did some stuff with it. But there hasn't been that much. I mean, they've just done a big thing with Star Wars, so they're obviously looking for the biggest brands. Um, but yeah, I think just there's, I think part of it is, is just a sense of generations really. Like we have people in the music industry who've grown up with gaming and they're just alive to the possibilities of partnerships. And I think everyone is also very aware of, of the role that gaming is playing in kids' lives now. I mean, and, and again, it's, it's always the worst thing to talk about your own kids and assume they're like every child, but just watching my, my 10 and 12 year old and how their friends use games how they hang out in Fortnite as a social network almost it's not just a game it's somewhere to hang out um and the fact that someone like marshmallow and someone like drake their cultural relevancy to my kids is more about Fortnite. like drake played Fortnite with ninja the big the big um twitch star mm. and suddenly drake was important to my kids because he played Fortnite, not because of the music he'd done um and marshmallow my 10 year old started playing loads of marshmallow videos on youtube after that concert so you it's kind of interesting like th there's this world of games where musicians can go into and it's not that they're big stars gracing the world of games with their presence it's like a real this is a place you can actually introduce yourself to people and you can build your audience as well you also mention a couple of um, musicians bigger names and managers things like that investing in more startups and esports so that's kind of a trend you saw yeah. yeah, if if you've got money, I no, as music industry, one of the things you can spend it on is like owning an esports team. Because I guess it's it's early enough that it's it's not like buying a basketball team. Which I guess there's always been these stories about like um, big artists bought bought a basketball team and bought a stake in, a, in an NBA team. I think esports is the more affordable way in if you're an artist now with kind of money to to spend. All right. And before we move off of games, you also mentioned the um, Le League of Legends uh, launching their own virtual hip hop group. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those things where I just, I gravitate towards these things because they're just so interesting. Like there's a group, it's virtual characters, but there's a real musician behind everyone. It's kind of the gorillas right. model, but these characters came from a game. And then when you see these, like League of Legends, when you see the world, the world championship final, and it's like a massive stadium full of tens of thousands of fans. And they have a performance where the musicians are there, but they also got holograms of the characters. Like it's just this wild thing. Um, and then you see the audiences that were watching that online. You think, wow, a new hip hop group just emerged, debuted to kind of tens of millions of people um, on, a, on a stage in front of 60,000 fans. Like, it's just so, I don't want to say alien. It's just so wild is the word for it, I think. And then, well, what does that mean? Like, what can we do with that? How can we work with these companies? What's the kind of potential for artists to come through this way and, and find fans as well as all the traditional ways that we know well? I think that's partly why I wanted to bring this up as kind of a combined trend of we talked about kind of going into other markets globally. And now we're almost like talking about go inside your own 
culture of how people are interacting with devices as a way of them having new musical experiences. Um, so it's interesting, as you say, you know, you have these virtual stadiums that are filled and wondering, okay, so what are the implications for music and fan engagement and conversations and um, commercial potential as well? I think so. And, yeah. And that leads us to uh, augmented reality and virtual reality. You, uh, in the, the version of the document that I saw, it was called AR is hot, but don't write off VR. What are you talking about there? Yeah, it needs a better headline, I think. We might change that. Yeah, so I think, like, we've always put these two together. And I think for a while, there was huge excitement around VR. And I think a lot of the people in the industry who are looking for the new tech were like, VR is amazing. And then the headsets didn't sell that well. Um, none of the music VR startups have have popped yet. They've done some cool stuff like Melody VR and Wave. Like We've written about some really interesting ones. None of them have, have suddenly had tens of millions of people looking at their stuff. So that's early. And I think the temptation is always to go, well, that's rubbish then, isn't it? No one's buying a VR headset. Um, but I think there's, there's, there's potential there. I mean, one of the things we wrote about recently was um, this game Beat Saber, which was a music rhythm game for VR, and it sold like a million copies. Um, and then Facebook bought it recently, which is kind of interesting, mm -hmm. I think, given that Facebook is really pushing VR. Mm -hmm. So I think there's more stories to tell, though, and there's more development to go. But yeah, AR, like we started writing about that when Pokemon Go first came out, the mobile game. And again, it was it, when we first started writing about it, it was like, oh yeah, maybe artists will have their own AR app and you'll go around the real world. It, it was all kind of rubbish, basically. But what's quietly happened is Instagram and Snapchat have made AR completely mainstream. It's putting a dog's tongue on your face or it's making yourself look really old in Facetune. Like social apps have made AR something that everyone's mum and dad is doing before you know before um all the kind of the hipsters who were like going i think ar is a future um so that's kind of something we're covering like like there's not that much musical but it's growing like there was i think stormzy over here in the uk who's having a massive week with his new album he's got a new ar filter on instagram so you can film his album initials going around your head mm. i think there was a billy eilish one like these things have quietly become the way ar and artists inter intersect but I think there's a lot more to go there. And I think with VR as well, like there's lots of lots of experimentation to go. And and I'm, I've become wary of writing anything off. So I think anyone who's saying that VR was a busted blush, like it's, it, there's, there's more to come, I think. Well, I mean, I think the, the big difference between the two, and this we've talked about on Music Tectonics before, is that AR tends to easily work with a device that you already have in your pocket or in your hand. Mm -hmm. And so the accessibility of it, it's just this other layer that you put on top of the world around you. It makes it a lot easier. Whereas VR, you got to create that reality from scratch and you have to have special hardware for it. That's, you know, still working out a lot of kink. Yeah. And also I think, I think we always, and as it's old again, it's, I feel like it's a cliche. I think I get told these things by other people so often that I, I repeat them and I, I hard catch myself, but that idea of when you have a new technology, you do what went before. So when they had, the first TV news bulletins were basically someone reading the news from behind a chair, right. like a radio bulletin and so on. Like we always, and I think with musical VR, the first things we did was like, right, we'll have a camera and you can, you can view a performance in 360 degrees. You can be in the front row up top or on stage. And it was basically like, we'll film a performance and you can watch it from different angles. Right. And I think now we're starting to see actually VR can be about interactivity and it can be about more like a gaming thing and a social thing. It's not just, being able to stand in the front row and look left and right while someone plays. Yeah, don't simulate uh, the reality, but create an entirely new reality. Yeah, so I think that's the next wave. Like this idea of, well, what's 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 this medium about? What are people doing with it in other ways outside music? How can we do that rather than we'll take a gig and film it? So I think there's there's more to come there. And that's a good example actually is um, uh, Wave, who was the the Wave VR. Hmm. They've been doing stuff where it's like, how can you? How can you be an interactive entity in the virtual gig? How can you be kind of doing special effects? And how can you be popping fireworks out of your fingers and dancing? And in a way, what's happening in Fortnite, like you can, in Fortnite, you can dance and show off to people. Like, how can that be translated into a VR experience around music? There's, there's so much more to explore, I think, as the headsets get out and as technology improves. So before we move off this kind of uh, combined trend of new music formats with commercial implications, we should talk about social music. We've talked about it already a bit. We mentioned Rezo as kind of an interesting experiment that just broke at the end of the year here. TikTok, obviously, a new a new kind of experience this this year really exploded. Um, Aux as well, kind of re replicating the the turntable 
.fm type of experience. But just just the idea that there's still experimenting happening with how to make music more social or how social interaction has this musical element to it. Yeah, I think so. We wrote a piece, oh God, I think a year or two ago now about why have so many social music things failed? Because <laughs> I've been writing about this for like 11 years and I've constantly got excited about some social music app or things like Turntable or like the whole fantasy football for music is something I've regularly got excited about and has never worked. So I think there's always been experiments like how can we have social music stuff? And what's actually happened is we've listened to music on Spotify and we've been social about it elsewhere like on on social networks or else so yeah it feels like there is something happening there maybe a new attempt to kind of what will be the social features that make sense within streaming services um that aren't ping which didn't work for apple um so yeah i think i i I feel there must be something there do you know i feel like i really i want when i love something i want to tell people when i want to share in it i want to see what people are saying about it and it feels that there must be more potential there to do things. Um, and I think maybe 2020 will be a year of trying that. There was even a report earlier this year that Spotify was maybe going to take another crack at social. Mm. Um, so, you know, maybe even the biggest platforms were doing it too. But yeah, there's, I feel there's something there, but so many things have not worked. Well, what, because What it looks like to me, Stu, is that uh, a lot of the things that are starting to get traction, like TikTok, for example, is that they are not implicitly music interactions Mm. but music is kind of a layer within it it's been tough for folks for platforms that are specifically music to build a social layer it's been easier for a social layer to build a music or social platform to build a music layer onto it i think that's right yeah and seeing i mean it's weird again we sort of talk about music that started as a meme or things that broke through and i think old town road is a perfect example you know it broke on tiktok uh there's been a tendency maybe to think of that as like novelties but actually things get popular on those platforms because they're really meaningful to people and people create their own videos with things so in a way there is there is something like yeah you're 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 expressing yourself and music is an important part of that and that is powerful and yeah right now that's that's something you do on on the social platforms so so yeah i think i'm really really again rezo rezo i don't know how to pronounce it really i haven't talked about it yet um i I haven't heard them say the name so i'm just guessing um i think like they're very much focusing on India, I think Indonesia. So it's very much high potential markets. And I am genuinely interested in whether with TikTok so popular in the US and UK, other places, whether they can come here and do something interesting and and come there. So yeah, there's definitely, there's loads of potential. And I think it's going to be a really interesting year for that stuff. So going on to our third kind of uh, mega trend here, it seems like there's a new emerging legal and licensing framework for music that is emerging. It is emerging. It is not finished yet. We had lots of news about the Music Modernization Act and the MLC here, the European Copyright Directive, and then also something you mentioned in the report a little bit, you don't get into tons of details, a little bit about kind of this re-emerging tension between publishers and labels about their share. So um, I don't know that we need to go into lots of detail. There's lots of detail that could be done there, but interesting to see that come up at least in the report. If you want to just mention sort of what you're thinking about there. Yeah, well, I suppose, so one thing we're thinking is that these there's been this period of legislation going the music industry's way. So I think the MMA, the music industry pulled together, got this thing through through the kind of the, the, the Congress and Senate. Uh, and in Europe, I think the European Copyright Directive, which for a long, seesaw back and forth. There was one point just before it was passed where half the music industry was like, we're giving up on this, it's rubbish. The draft is terrible. We're gonna, we, we think it should be scrapped. <laughs> like it was a real kind of toys out of pram moment. And then what actually happened was this law that, that the music industry is kind of happy with and that the tech industry is kind of not so happy with. Um, so that's one thing. I think in both cases, the music industry pulled together, kind of put their internal fights aside and they got legislators to kind of swing their way. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of interesting. And um, go ahead. Well, I guess the other thing is that all those things still have fights. So I think in the US, you're seeing with the, with the MLC, there was a fight over how much money it should get. And then now there are arguments over who it's working with. And, you know, so these things, the unity can kind of quickly split apart and everyone starts arguing again. Yeah, yeah. So in both cases, there's still a lot still, still to go. The MLC's conversations about the kind of database they're going to create, what's included, what's not included, and how everyone, different players feel about that. And then the fact that the European Copyright Directive is just that, a directive. And now each individual nation's got to make a choice about how they're going to implement 
as well. I, I still think there needs to be a fleshed out conversation about this issue between publishers and, and label yeah. because the streaming um, uh, economy has brought so much more life back into music and you see the labels are very happy and not all the publishers are happy. <laughs> well, I think so. It's one of those awkward things. I think where I think songwriters in particular are saying, we're, I mean, it's awkward because a lot of people are songwriter performers, so they'll be getting different kind of royalty streams. But songwriters more broadly are saying, we're struggling. This isn't enough money. Everyone else is seeing their money go up and we're we're struggling to pay our bills. And even when you interview, like I've interviewed a couple of collecting societies who've been announcing record collections and they'll say, yeah, but it's between many more songwriters. So the per head payment is dropping. Mm. Um, and it, it it's, I don't know, I, I could be wrong, but it feels to me there's this awkward thing that people don't like to bring up, especially when they were going through this period of having to pull together to get these legislations through. No one wanted to talk about how publishers might like more of the streaming royalties. And if you're a Spotify, you don't want to get involved in that argument either. Like you don't want to be saying, well, I think publishers should get more because you're picking fights yourself then. So I feel like maybe now, and it's not really a happy thought, but maybe now we've got the, now these legislations have gone through, maybe next year is when there's more discussion about this idea of, well, how are streaming royalties split? Is it fair? Because if the publishers get more, the label's going to get less. And then you get into the whole power structures of, well, within the three major music companies, is the publisher subordinate to the label, which I've seen written about, you know, there's a whole, it's a very, very awkward conversation, but I feel maybe next year might be the time to have it and try and have it in a mature, constructive way. I'm a, I'm a big optimist on that, but <laughs> that's good. Good. Um, so the fourth one, the, the, the combined trend that I saw was different shifts in audio as it relates to music. Um, and we can look at that both in terms of how audio is being used, but also some hardware, obviously smart speakers would be a big piece of that, uh, that continued to grow significantly. Um, and then podcast is the other thing. 2019 was definitely a big year for podcasts. Uh, Spotify's acquisition of, of Gimlet and Anchor and these other things, kind of interesting as well. And then just a nod to uh, kind of a, some new life in the idea of high-res audio. I kind of combined those together just because it seems like that none of them are necessarily solely about music, but they have all this uh, interesting stuff happening with audio that's changing how people are discovering music, interacting with music, competing with music and so forth yeah i mean podcasts really interest me i mean because i was quite late to them actually like i remember when serial was big and i was kind of going oh podcasts i don't really listen to podcasts and then recently i've been like oh, i probably should start listening to podcasts now um so i've had this year of discovering stuff so like, I've got, i was looking at my place today i've been listening to i think at the moment i'm following dolly parton's america mm. um slow burn which is a biggie and tupac um a series of that um i'm listening to a podcast called impeachment explained which is at Vox, I think. It's like for Brits to understand what's going on in the US at the moment. Um, and then some comedy stuff. And, but like, I've actually, it's become part of my listening diet. Um, so I've been personally thinking about how does this affect music. So now when I walk, I listen to podcasts. When I work, I listen to music. And it's become this quite clear separation. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things, I think, where like parts of the industry worry about podcasts and sort of see it as, if people listen to more podcasts on Spotify, they listen to music less and there'll be less royalties to us. And this is probably a nefarious plan by Spotify. And you can get into the whole conspiracy theory side of it. But on the other hand, there's a bunch of labels who are going, we're quite excited about podcasts. Like they're a way for us to tell our artists stories. And after a period when people talk a lot about, oh God, what if our artists are just a line on a playlist? People won't know their stories, their personalities. Actually, a podcast, they might spend half an hour listening to your artist talk. And that's perfect for getting their stories across. Mm. So I think like some people are very excited about it. Other people are kind of worried, but it's, to me, it feels positive, I think. Um, and also because it feels like there's a bigger picture of, especially for Spotify, they're, they're really, really mustering their tanks to take on radio. Exactly. At the moment. Yeah. And I know in the US, there's even more of a thing there because of the whole performance royalties on radio. You know, you get them from Spotify, you don't get them from radio. So there's an argument that it's actually better for artists if they listen, if they stream. So yeah, I think, I think um, it makes sense. Like I'm kind of, well, we talk about bundles a bit later, I think, but there's a sense of like going towards things for just one piece of content, like just music or just spoken word or just video. Maybe we're about to go into an era where that becomes less the case. So I think if you're Spotify, you have to be expanding and, and audio makes sense earliest. Somehow it makes me remember when SoundCloud used to describe itself quietly as the YouTube of audio. 
And yeah. it was like Spotify's with this acquisitions and podcasts may be going in that direction, which does speak to competing with radio, which is still big, but declining significantly. And obviously will shift completely from radio devices to what's in your pocket over time. Yeah, it was interesting. One of the most interesting startups I've talked to recently was this company called um, Super Hi-Fi in the US, yeah. who were trying to make streaming sound more like radio with kind of eye dents and stings and interview clips. And that was interesting too. This idea of like, what you're going to be listening to an audio stream and perhaps there is news and weather and sports in that as well as music, as well as longer form programs. And how is that stitched together and who does it? And, and that's, again, it feels so early days on that, like, Spotify launching their, like their daily drive playlist is really interesting for me, that the idea of here's a playlist of, of spoken word plus music and it's for your drive to work, which is bang on when radio still has people. I think in the car, people still listen to radio a lot. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's loads more to do. I think So a lot of this, I think, is Spotify figuring out not how can we screw labels out of royalties. It's more like how do we compete with radio where there's lots of listeners and lots of money to be kind of across well i'm looking forward to when the daily drive type of thing really works well because i think the concept's good it seems like there may need to be some even shorter form content to make that work really well on the audio because you know you kind of like this mix of um you know spoken word with music but you might not want 45 minutes of spoken word like a full this american life episode or, or something like that and in fact yeah. many of those great podcasts do a great job of editing music in so maybe they don't they don't need it but other ones you know your newsier ones it might be nice to get one little national public radio or bbc bulletin followed by a song you love the song that you love rather than the one that somebody decided to put there and then the next bbc bulletin Mm. And true. And all this stuff, like, I think maybe if you're BBC, you you record a lot of interviews with artists and then those snippets get served up people who are interested in them. Yeah. So I think there's, yeah. there's loads. Of, yeah. You're right. I think this idea of personalization of what you get and it almost, so I've been reversing into this in the music industry side and learning about the podcast industry and seeing the trends there, like seeing people start to do daily 10 minute podcasts. So it feels like on a production side, people are coming this way as well, like shorter, more regular fits into your daily routine. Which, which kind of ties into smart speakers nicely. This idea of like you, you say to Alexa, hey, Alexa, play my morning stuff and it will give you the weather followed by some news, followed by, you know, clips. So I think, yeah, how to slice and dice this stuff so it's music and spoken word. There's going to be a lot of progress made on that and figuring out how it can be not just like radio, but but how it can be better than radio, which is where the personalization stuff comes in. Well, we're going to run out of time if we don't pick up the pace here, which is not your fault at all. I put a long list of things here trying to get a lot of this report out so people can get a good sense of it and go go download it and uh, and read the full report and see the background on it. But we, we have to say at least something about smart speakers before we, we move on. I mean, the growth's been incredible um, this, this year continuing, and then the, the use cases are still emerging i think so it's one of those things and you, you get this it's, it's always men of a certain age on stage at conferences going i got my echo is brilliant you should all have an echo alexa's marvelous like the real invention like, i've discovered this thing it's brilliant um and i think what's been lacking is what do we do about this or what does it mean for us really like we know that people are kind of asking for music in different ways maybe they're asking alexa for like play me some music or play me you know more generic inquiries but we don't understand the algorithms that are serving them up that music. We don't really know what we should be doing. So you've got labels, I think, putting teams on this job. The major labels going, right, what do we do about Alexa and Siri and Google Listen? How do we make sure our voice, uh, oh God, I set my phone off now. The danger of talking about this stuff, you set your own voice assistant off. Um, and then, it's, so yeah, there's lots of experiments. So I, I went to a conference this year um, and there was a panel of experts on stage going, smart speakers are big, blah, blah, blah. And then an artist in the audience, an independent artist called Emma McGann, who's British, got up and said she just launched her own Alexa skill recently um, as a way of her fans listening to her. And everyone on stage was fascinated and they were the experts. And there was an artist saying, I'm playing with this stuff and figuring out how it can help me connect with fans. So I think, again, there's loads more to do. Like these things are out there and they're quite popular. But what can we actually do to make sure music gets to people's ears through them? And it's it's very unknown. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where that where that goes. Um... I'm trying to think somewhere along the line, I heard people talking about, well, smart speakers, it's, it's a thing and it's not going to change everything. And, it, and, you know, people will get used to it. Um, and so maybe, maybe some, in some ways it's been over-indexed for what it's impactably, but I, I still think, I still think it's, it's having a significant impact. Something that sticks in my mind is an interview I did a few years ago now, it's like three years ago with a, a label person. And he was saying, these are going to be conversational music discovery tools. Right. So you will say, I want to learn about, 
the birth of hip-hop. And Alexa will say to you, okay, um, do you want to learn about um, this thing that happened in New York or this thing that happened here? Um, and it will kind of talk you through while playing music. And this idea of the kind of the music documentary becomes an audio choose-your-own-adventure. Yeah, right. And that was said to me three years ago. I've not seen it yet. Yeah. So I sort of feel like there's stuff to come, but we, we still haven't figured out how we can do it. So another category of these trends that I called uh, musical chairs uh, kind of combines some disparate things, but just made me think about the fact that so much is shifting, so much innovation is happening. There's you know such fast growth and acquisitions and so much happening that maybe that's a trend in itself. And so in this category, I kind of combined consolidation, streaming, pecking order, <laughs> bundling you mentioned earlier, uh, catalogs changing hands. I don't know if I don't know if this is the right way to combine those, but let's talk about some of those things. I mean, you had mentioned bundling earlier um, when you were talking about Spotify podcast. Obviously, Apple comes up a lot because they have so many different verticals that they can already kind of put together, news, video, music, um, and ebooks, so forth. What, what, do we, what did you see happening in bundling? What are you expecting next year? Well, it's already been rumored. I, I love, I used to be a pure tech journalist. So the whole Apple speculation mill was my job once. And I'm quite glad it's not so much anymore. But this idea of Apple has got subscription music, news, games, and video now, TV. And the, the people are talking about the obvious next choice will be to bundle those all into a subscription with a discount, um, which becomes really interesting for the music industry because you're saying well how do you decide how to split someone's i don't know 25 30 dollars a month between music games news and tv if you can listen to music while you're reading news so you can't just say well you spent 10 minutes doing this 10 minutes doing that so split the royalties that way so it, it brings up all these questions about how how music competes directly with these other content formats and again the other conference cliche is like we're in an attention economy we're competing with Fortnite and blah blah and this idea of the bundles means you're competing directly for your piece of the pie of a unified. So that's kind of that's kind of fun. And I think I've seen labels talking about that, saying about this is one of the things they're talking about when they go in to do their deals now, is how is music compensated in a bundle situation? And again, the one thing we said in the report is it's not new. Like Amazon Prime Music is part of a bundle where you get video, you get music, you get other stuff. So yeah, so I think how is music compensated, but also... If you're a Spotify, if you're a Netflix, if you're a pure play in that world, what do you do? You know, and Spotify had their bundle with Hulu, which I think has now ended. I, I, I was in the, more in the US than here because we haven't got Hulu yet. Right. But I'm kind of fascinated in, well, at some point, does Spotify and Netflix get together and go, well, we need to do something because we're both pure plays. How can we partner up, you know, and, and compete against the Apple bundle right. and the Google bundle and the Amazon bundle? But I don't know. So also in the music cha musical chairs, one thing you refer to is the consolidation. Um, what what are you seeing there? What do you see in 2019? What's a trend there? Well, I think, I mean, at the biggest picture possible, I think we're just figuring out what the structure of this industry is. And, and then down to the more micro level, what is the structure an artist needs around them? And like, I'm an old connoisseur of labels are dead stories. I think that's been written about since I started writing about the industry. You know, the labels are dead. This is going to kill, crowdfunding will kill the labels or, you know, blah, blah. Um, I, I think we're figuring out what a management company does and what it could do in future. What does a label do and what it could do in future? What does a streaming service do? What tools does it provide that maybe in the past would have been a label's job? And all this stuff is in flux. And there's artists in the middle of it with their managers going, right, what do we need to do? What tools do we use and what people do we use? And who do we, what kind of deals do we have? And it, it's really interesting time. And I think everything is up in the air. Like there's no, I don't think there's a template um, at all. So, and I think what, what we tend to do, and this is always journalists' fault too, is we tend to look for, this is the new model. So I remember when Amanda Palmer did her crowdfunding campaign years ago, it was like, crowdfunding is the new model. It's going to kill labels. And it wasn't, it worked really well for her and it's worked for some other artists, but it, it didn't become the way to do it. Uh, and then when Chance the Rapper did his thing independently, it was like, you don't need a label, do it yourself. Chance the Rapper proves. And actually fast forward on, we now have people doing the Chance the Rapper thing, people doing the Mind of Palmer thing, people signing with big labels. There's no kind of, there is no one path, if that makes sense. That sounds like a really obvious thing to say, but I feel like, it's an exciting time to be an artist because you can be like looking at this stuff and saying, right, well, maybe I could do it that way. 
And if I do work with a bigger company, this is the kind of deal I want. And I have more leverage to ask for that. So that's the other thing I'm, this musical chairs is like, I think we're going to be talking a lot about what is a fair deal for an artist? How is rights ownership managed, which comes into the Taylor Swift controversy we might talk about in a minute. Um, yeah, what do I need? And I think artists have more power to push for it maybe than in the past. And that's, that's again, making everyone, labels included, figure out what they do well and how they, how they pitch themselves. Yeah, this is great. I'm, I'm not going to go through the rest of everything because I think, you know, the report uh, speaks for itself. There's so much else we could be talking about. You talk about catalog shopping booms and catalogs, publishing catalogs, changing hands. Um, this idea of how to break an artist, you talk about Little Mouse X and TikTok, the continued strength of playlists, the continued strength of YouTube in marketing as well. And then I noticed uh, sprinkled throughout, there's several, con- I called it controversies of 2019. Spotify had its share. Taylor Swift had her share. Obviously, Pledge Music fell apart and created a lot of problems in 2019. And then you have a section on fake music as well. But um, Mm. as we reflect back on this entire conversation, this entire report, Stu, maybe we could wrap up by asking you, what are you most excited or curious about for 2020? Okay, everything. (laughs) But no, that's not a good answer. Um, So I think the whole AI music stuff, like, can someone make this a create? Can the next TikTok be an AI music creation app for kids? And will that, uh, we did an interview recently with someone saying the next Billie Eilish could come from an app where you create your own music and that would be fascinating. Yeah, awesome. um, one thing I'm, it's, I'm not sure excited is the, is the word, it's more terrified, it's, it's a climate emergency. I've been thinking about this a lot recently um, and what as an industry, how we're talking about the climate emergency. Uh, and so you've seen artists like Coldplay say they're not going to tour until they can figure out how to do it more sustainably. Uh, the 1975 over in here in the UK have been talking about how can they upcycle their merch? How can they offset their flights? Um, I think that's going to be a really important thing next year. Like just as an industry, how do we stand up? Um, especially when there are politicians, world leaders who maybe are wavering or actively hostile to doing this stuff. I think that's, I mean, it sounds, I feel a bit worthy saying all this, but I'm genuinely, I feel like we've, as we started talking about it and artists have started talking about it and acknowledging some of the problems, acknowledging the fact that you have to fly everywhere when you tour and that it's just, it's very hard to make that sustainable uh, for the planet. So I think that's that. I'm excited to see how how we stand up as industry. Um, and I think I am, I'm curious about the geopolitical landscape as well, not to sound even more worthy, but so, over here in well so you had in the us you had that thing didn't you with the um the mba coach who talked about china and then the mba got in trouble for um we're just having that here with arsenal football club so one of their players talked out against chinese government and the club quickly apologized and there's a hoo-ha going on about that i'm i'm really interested to see if the music industry is going to have one of those moments next year like what if i don't think she will what if taylor swift came out and criticized the president the the kind of something in hong kong What would Universal Music do, especially if Tencent has a, you know, this, I think we've got one of those things coming. And I think it's going to give us a lot of thoughts about, um, well, again, it's not a new thing. Like musicians have always been political and have always spoken out um, when they believe things are wrong. But I think next year, with what's happening in the US, you've got an election coming up, haven't you? We're going to have more Brexit shenanigans in the UK. There's a rise of populism in the far right. I feel like the musicians are going to have, a lot to say and a lot to lead and it's going to be quite a, a, a an important time for that if that makes yeah. sense it's not really a digital no. trend no. but it's kind of a absolutely no i think i think you know there's some bigger shifts happening on a geopolitical level that are going to impact uh different parts of the music space um certainly the the type of thing like you know saying saying the wrong thing to the wrong people at the wrong time but also you know who owns what you know who owns these platforms which direction is music getting imported and exported um super super interesting times we're becoming more global um just by nature of technology bringing people closer together let's emphasize that closer together part at the end of our episodes too <laughs> well yeah but i think it's good i think as well as, as like we're we're all getting more educated we're all thinking about privacy more i think in the music contest we're thinking about world we're thinking about artists and how much how they get paid and how they survive and it's not just spotify should pay them more like it's a nuanced conversation and i think yeah i think it's the more 
the more this stuff gets to the more artists step up and talk and more Taylor Swift talks about what she's talking about or 1975 like it always moves the conversation on it's always great and so that's one thing I would say is that artists I think a lot of what we talked about is artists having more power more clout and more more agency and I think that includes talking about some of these issues that may not always be easy but they can lead the conversation and they can they can help the people who are consuming this stuff or using these platforms can help them form opinions. So that's exciting. I think. This has been super interesting. Uh, I've been talking with Stuart Dredge from Music Ally about their just re- re- released trends report of 2019. Uh, Stu, it sounds like you could get it at musically.com slash reports. Is that right? Uh, that might, yeah, or, or come mm-hmm. to a Twitter because I think we'll, okay. we'll probably pin it to that. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll, there'll be different so ways to get Music Ally on Twitter. And your great newsletter is available at musically.com slash subscribe. There's a uh, two-week trial subscription. Check it out. And then if you love it, you can decide to re-up and support the, the great journalism that you do. Stu, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. It's been great. I hope you'll come on again sometime. No, thank you very much for having me. It's been a delight. So uh, yeah, cheers. Likewise. Happy 2020. Hey, and thank you so much for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and uh, come to musictectonics.com where you can subscribe to the Music Tectonics newsletter, find out about upcoming episodes, events, and blog posts we have there. Thanks for listening. Listening to Music Tectonics.